Welcome to the mountain. Hey, it's Brett here once again to inspire you to get outside and connect with nature for mindfulness, for your health, and for personal growth, naturally. Hey, I am so glad you're here on this Walden Wednesday with us, where we are celebrating National Bird Day by taking just a few minutes out of our day to slow the heart and mind down enough to truly listen and absorb the thoughts and ideas and philosophies and writings of some of the great thinkers and naturalists and lovers of nature like Emerson, Whitman, John Muir, and Henry David Thoreau. And then, as always, we give you just a little time at the end to just be in a natural environment and settle into a deeper state of awareness as you go through your day fully awake fully present, alive, and intentionally growing into becoming your very best self. So, come on in. Today, we are visiting the writings of one of my heroes, naturalist, wildlife photographer, and nature writer Enos Mills, who lived at the base of Long's Peak, one of the highest mountains in Colorado, not far from Estes Park. He's widely regarded as the father of Rocky Mountain National Park and worked and fought really hard for the legislation that in 1915 eventually won the preservation and protection of the 415 square miles of paradise in the Colorado Rockies that now make up what's the 10th oldest and now the third most visited national park in the United States. And this was all due to a, quote, chance meeting he had with, no, as a young man, (laughs) with the wizened old nature sage John Muir who inspired and encouraged him to establish Rocky Mountain National Park, considered by many to be the crown jewel of the national park system. So thanks go out to John Muir for Rocky Mountain National Park as well. Mills went on to not only take on Muir's advice, but he wrote about the beautiful mountain wilderness of the area and its wonderful wildlife that he loved and treasured so much. And it was said of him that he was a kind of evangelist of the wilderness and that when he preached the gospel of the wilds, you were convinced of the sincerity of its divine invitation. And I think you'll find that same spirit in today's meditation. And today we will visit with Mills in a passage from his book called Wildlife on the Rockies, one of my personal favorites, titled Bob and Some Other Birds. Something to consider as you listen is Mills' heart for educating people about the preservation of our precious wildlands. In fact, he's the one that coined the term nature guide and is the founder of the nature interpretive program widely used by our rangers today. So now, in honor of National Bird Day, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this passage from Wildlife on the Rockies, one of his 18 beloved nature books. I love how he poetically reveals to us the brave pines and the eagles soaring in the quiet bending blue sky over the Rockies. May you be inspired by the beauty and intimate connection with birds and nature that Enos Mills so greatly treasured. Bob and some other birds. Birds are plentiful on the Rockies, and the accumulating information concerning them may, in a few years, accredit Colorado with having more kinds of birds than any other state. The mountains and plains of Colorado carry a wide range of geographic conditions a variety of life zones, and in many places there is an abundance of bird food of many kinds. These conditions naturally produce a large variety of birds throughout the state. Notwithstanding this array of feathered inhabitants, most tourists who visit the West complain of a scarcity of birds. But birds 
the Rockies have, and any bird student could tell why more of them are not seen by tourists. The loud manners of most tourists who invade the Rockies simply put the birds to flight. When I hear the approach of tourists in the wilds, I feel instinctively that I should fly for safety myself. Our little brothers of the air, the world over, dislike the crowd and will linger only for those who come with deliberation and quiet. This entire mountain section, from foothills to mountain summits, is enlivened in nesting time with scores of species of birds. Low down on the foothills, one will find Bullock's Oriole, the red-headed woodpecker, the Arkansas kingbird, and one will often see, and more often hear, the clear, strong notes of the western meadowlark ringing over the hills and meadows. The wise and rather murderous magpie goes chattering about. Here and there the quiet bluebird is seen. The kingfisher is in his appointed place. Long-crested jays, Clark's crows, and pygmy nuthatches are plentiful, and the wild note of the chickadee is heard on every hand. Above the altitude of 8,000 feet, you may hear in June the marvelous melody of Audubon's hermit thrush. Along the brooks and streams lives the water oozel. This is one of the most interesting and self-reliant of Rocky Mountain birds. It loves the swift, cool mountain streams. It feeds in them, nests within reach of the splash of their spray, closely follows their bent and sinuous course in flight, and from an islanded boulder mingles its liquid song with the music of the moving waters. There is much in the life of the oozel that is refreshing and inspiring. I wish it were better known. Around Timberline in summer, one may hear the happy song of the white-throated sparrow. Here and above lies the leucostict. Far above the vanguard of the brave pines, where the brilliant flowers fringe the soiled remains of winter's drifted snow, where sometimes the bees hum and the painted butterflies sail on easy wings, the broad-tailed hummingbird may occasionally be seen, while still higher the eagles soar in the quiet bending blue. On the heights, sometimes nesting at an altitude of 13,000 feet, is the ptarmigan, which, like the Eskimo, seems supremely contented in the land of crags and snow. Of all the birds on the Rockies, the one most marvelously eloquent is the solitaire. I have often felt that everything stood still and that every beast and bird listened while the matchless solitaire sang. The hermit thrust seems to suppress one, to give one a touch of reflective loneliness, but the solitaire stirs one to be up and doing, gives one the spirit of youth. In the solitaire's song, one feels all the freshness and the promise of spring. The song seems to be born of ages of freedom beneath peaceful skies, of the rhythm of the universe, of a mingling of the melody of winds and waters, and of all rhythmic sounds that murmur and echo out of doors, and of every song that nature sings in the wild gardens of the world. I am sure I have never been more thoroughly wide awake and hopeful than when listening to the solitaire's song. The world is flushed with a diviner atmosphere. Every object carries a fresher significance. There are new thoughts and clear, 
calm hopes sure to be realized on the enchanted fields of the future. I was camping alone one evening in the deep solitude of the Rockies. The slanting sun rays were glowing on St. Vrain's crag-crowned hills, and everything was at peace when, from a nearby treetop, came the triumphant, hopeful song of a solitaire, and I forgot all except that the world was young. One believes in fairies when the solitaire sings. Some of my friends have predicted that I shall sometime meet with an accident and perish in the solitudes alone. If their prediction should come true, I shall hope it will be in the summertime, while the flowers are at their best, and that during my last conscious moments I shall hear the melody of the solitaire singing as I die with the dying day. I sat for hours in the woods one day, watching a pair of chickadees feeding their young ones. There were nine of these hungry midgets, and like nine small boys, they not only were always hungry, but were capable of digesting everything. They ate spiders and flies, green worms, ants, millers, dirty brown worms, insect eggs by the dozens, devil's darning needles, wood lice, bits of lichen, grasshoppers, and I know not how many other things. I could not help thinking that when one family of birds destroyed such number of injurious insects, if all the birds were to stop eating, the insects would soon destroy every green tree and plant on earth. One of the places where I used to camp to enjoy the flowers, the trees, and the birds was on the shore of a glacier lake. Near the lake were eternal snows, rugged gorges, and forests primeval. To its shore, especially in autumn, came many bird callers. I often screened myself in a dense clump of fir trees on the north shore to study the manners of birds which came near. To help attract and detain them, I scattered feet on the shore, and I spent interesting hours and days in my hiding place enjoying the etiquette of birds at feast and frolic. I was lying in the sun one afternoon, just outside my fir clump, gazing out across the lake, when a large black bird alighted on the shore some distance around the lake. Surely, I said to myself, that is a crow. A crow I had not seen or heard of in that part of the country. I wanted to call to him that he was welcome to eat at my free lunch counter, when it occurred to me that I was in plain sight. Before I could move, the bird rose in the air and started flying leisurely toward me. I hoped he would see or smell the feed and tarry for a time. But he rose as he advanced, and he appeared to be looking ahead. I had begun to fear he would go by without stopping, when he suddenly wheeled and at the same instant said, Hurrah! as distinctly as I have ever heard it spoken, and dropped to the feed. The clearness, energy, and unexpectedness of his hurrah startled me. He alighted and began to eat, evidently without suspecting my presence, notwithstanding the fact that I lay only a few feet away. Some days before, a mountain lion had killed a mountain sheep, a part of this carcass I had dragged to my bird table. Upon this, the crow, for such he was, alighted and fed ravenously for some time. Then he paused, straightened up, and took a look about. His eye fell on me, and instantly he squatted, as if to hurl himself in hurried flight. But he hesitated, then appeared as if starting to burst out with caw or some such exclamation, but changed his mind and repressed it. 
Finally, he straightened and fixed himself for another good look at me. I did not move, and my clothes must have been a good shade of protective coloring, for he seemed to conclude that I was not worth considering. He looked straight at me for a few seconds, uttered another, which he emphasized with a defiant gesture, and went on energetically eating. In the midst of this, something alarmed him, and he flew swiftly away and did not come back. Was this crow a pet that had concluded to strike out for himself? Or had his mimicry, or his habit of laying hold of whatever pleased him, caused him to appropriate this word from bigger folk? Go where you will over the Rockies, and the birds will be with you. One day, I spent several hours on the summit of Long's Peak, and while there, twelve species of birds alighted or passed near enough for me to identify them. One of these birds was an eagle, another a hummingbird. On a June day, while the heights were more than half covered with the winter snow, I came across the nest of ptarmigan near a drift and at an altitude of 13,000 feet above sea level. The ptarmigan with their home above treeline amid eternal snows are wonderfully self-reliant and self-contained. The ouzel, too, is self-poised, indifferent to all the world but his brook, and showing an appreciation for water greater, I think, than of any other landsman. These birds, the ptarmigan and the ouzel, along with the willow thrush, who sings out his melody amid the shadows of the pines, who puts his woods into song. These birds of the mountain are with me when memory takes me back a solitary visitor to the lonely places of the Rockies. The birds of the Rockies, as well as the bigger folk who live there, have ways of their own which distinguish them from their kind in the East. They sing with more enthusiasm, but with the same subtle tone that everywhere tells that all is right with the world and makes all to the manner born glad to be alive. Thanks for choosing to spend some much-needed quiet and reflective nature time here together. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Remember, you can do this again and again here whenever you like at Mountain Zen Den. It means the world to have you here. Oh, one more thing. Be sure to get outside today and remember, life is a gift, nature's a gift, and you are a gift back to the world. Happy birthday, my friend, and we'll see you here again soon. <laughs>